This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Megan Gibson in London. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 22nd of October. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. I want to spend the bulk of today's episode on an interview that Megan did this week. Megan, why don't you tell us a bit about the person with whom you were speaking? Yes, I'd love to. I had a sit-down interview in London with Franz Timmermans. So he's the executive vice president of the European Commission. And it's quite interesting. So he's been quite a prominent figure within the European Commission for some time now. And he actually ran for president in 2019. But of course, you know, he lost out to Ursula von der Leyen. But after that, she tapped him to lead the charge of the European Green Deal. So since 2019, he's led the charge with the EU's project to step up its emission reduction. They're increasing their goal to at least reducing by 55% by 2030, and they aim to be climate neutral by 2050. Ahead of COP26, which starts on October 31st. He's really been tasked with going around the world, meeting with representatives and heads of state from all the nations that are going to be involved and goading them to step up their own commitments in order to match what the EU is doing. So he's had a a very busy few weeks and he had a lot of really, really interesting things to say about where other countries are at and where he thinks they will be. Is there anything in particular that you think that listeners should be keeping their ears open for while they listen to this interview? So anyone who really knows Timmermans knows that he doesn't really hold back on what he thinks. When he was under uh, Juncker, he was often tasked with difficult portfolios. He worked on migration. He did a lot of stuff with Poland's rule of law. And the thing that really struck me in our conversation is that He's very much the diplomat in this new role. He's obviously being honest about what countries need to step up and what countries need to commit to, but he's very, very good. And he even says this explicitly when we discuss China, which listeners will hear, that countries can't be bullied into making these commitments. Everyone has to kind of be on board and know that they're needed and they're valued. This is not just about bullying different countries into stepping up. This is about playing the diplomacy card and really kind of navigating these waters. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And I think you'll you'll hear anytime he, you know, has a very 
punchy statement, it's always preceded by a very complimentary one. So he's, he's really acknowledging that a lot of countries are in the same place and have challenges, but everyone is trying. Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing how he manages to be a diplomat and not pull punches. So I think without further ado, we will turn it over to you and Timmermans. Franz Timmermans, thank you so much for chatting with us today. What are your priorities for COP26? What we want out of COP26 is that after Glasgow, we can say uh, we're still within Paris territory. We will stay well below two degrees temperature rise as compared to pre-industrial levels, and we still have a shot at 1.5. To get there, we need to sort a few things. First of all, we need to make sure that the ambitions that especially the major emitters uh, put on the table are good enough, strong enough to get us where we need to be. So we need many industrialized nations to be more ambitious than they are today. And uh, we try and lead by example in the European Union by announcing our climate law and the, uh, the goals we've set, both for 2030 and 2050. The second issue that needs to be sorted is um, the money that was promised to the developing world, the 100 billion as of 2020 and then yearly. Also here we're not there yet, and uh, I keep calling on all rich countries on earth to do more. Uh, We have decided to increase our contribution from the European Union. We're now good for about one third of the total of 100 billion dollars. The Americans have come on board with 11.4 billion, which is again about one third of what the European Union is is doing. But we we keep on pushing also on our member states uh, in the EU. And I know that Also, the um, chairman of of COP, Alok Sharma, is doing his best to convince people to put more money on the table. And then the third issue is all about the rules of the game. So things that weren't solved before, Article 6 issues, but especially also the issue pertaining to transparency and accountability. Because if the whole background of what we're doing is putting a price on carbon and letting the market have a positive influence, we have to make sure we're talking about same rules and the same uh, baselines, etc., etc. So I would say these are the three main issues that we need to look at. So you've spent the last few months meeting with various government representatives, stakeholders. Where do you think people are ahead of COP based on your conversations? Well, what I see is in the last couple of months, growing awareness that we're in the middle of a huge crisis and that we have to act now. We don't have any time to waste. And we need to sort of close the gap that was still there between what needs to be done and what we're doing. And and the IPCC report has really helped. And I see more and more nations stepping up to the plate and closing that gap. We're not there yet. Uh, You know, if you look at the major emitters, China still has to announce some of its more concrete plans. China is responsible for 28% of global emissions, which means that as long as they're ambitious, I think uh, we can still keep our targets uh, in sight. How much is China engaging at the moment? Well, they're very active and, uh, you know, they're, they're more than willing to talk to us all the time. Mm-hmm. The fact that uh, President Xi Jinping has announced that they will no longer finance uh, foreign coal-fired power generation is a huge help. But now we hope they will also make some announcements of what they're going to do domestically. The only thing is, at the end of the day, it's about the concrete steps you're going to take. And I hope we can see some clarifications from the Chinese side between now and and COP. But it is clear to me that they want to be part of a successful COP. 
like they were in Paris. We would not have the Paris Agreement without a very active Chinese contribution. Uh, I hope they will do the same in, in, in Glasgow. That brings me to Russia. Where do you think Russia is standing at the moment? I have to say Russia is more and more constructive on this because I believe that uh, not just the IPCC report, but what's also actually happening in Russia, what's happened over the summer with the wildfires and what's happening with the permafrost, has uh, increased the awareness in the Russian body politic that there is a problem and the problem also affects Russia. There's rumors that they would announce a net zero date at some point. I hope they will soon and that it will be ambitious. And they're very much open to, to dialogue. I will be traveling to Russia, hopefully, um, in the next couple of weeks. And all the conferences we've had so far, including the pre-COP in Milan, the Russian delegation was very active and also forward-looking. So that's better, a lot better than, than before. And in terms of the UK, have you felt that what the UK is preparing to commit to is matching their rhetoric in hosting the summit? I think so. What I see from Her Majesty's government is is quite ambitious. It's among the most ambitious uh, on the planet. Uh, the thing is, our experience in Europe is your ambition needs to be backed up with very concrete policies and a very, very concrete timetable. And so that's why we've put on the table 13 pieces of legislation, amending existing legislation or introducing new legislation to get us to the at least minus 55% in emissions by 2030. Because it's very good to announce a date uh, at which you're going to be climate neutral or carbon neutral, it's even more important to show the pathways of how you're going to get there because the effort is tremendously complicated. I wanted to pivot to discuss COP as an actual venue. It's built as a global summit. In reality, this year, a lot of representatives from the Global South will not be there because of COVID restrictions, vaccine inequity. What effect will this have on how negotiations play out? Well, we need them. We need them in the negotiations. We've also engaged with them as much as we can in the pre-COP. And that went actually rather well. We had the coalition of most ambitious countries coming uh, together, led by the Marshall Islands uh, and Grenada. And we were present there. And many of our colleagues from also uh, the industrialized world were there, including the UK, but our credibility with those countries hinges on our ability to put on the table the money that we promised. And that was also very much a gist of what, what their contributions were. Because you know, just imagine you're, you're, you're from the Marshall Islands living on an atoll and you're not talking about you know, uh, erratic weather or floods or wildfires. You're talking about your atoll simply disappearing in the waves. So... I think the sense of urgency from the developing world is strong. The understanding that they need to be part of the solution themselves is also much stronger than a couple of years ago. Uh, the willingness of their leaders to, to act is also stronger. So it's not looking awful. It's looking absolutely promising as long as we can demonstrate that we have their interests at heart as well. And if they can't be there physically, we have to make sure that by all sorts of means they are there virtually and that they are heard and that they are an integral part of the negotiation. I think the last two years with the COVID crisis has really acted as a maybe a poignant reflection or mirror of the inequities caused mm -hmm. by climate change and will continue to be caused yes. by climate change. Mm -hmm. How can developed nations ensure that there is a just transition? The first lesson is, and this was an incredibly important lesson to learn, is we're vulnerable, you know, no, no matter how rich you are, no matter 
the access you have to the best healthcare in the world, you're vulnerable. I think this is a lesson humanity really needed to learn because the vulnerability uh, caused by COVID is only a small thing compared to the vulnerability we have uh, in, in the climate crisis and the ecocide that's threatening. And the second lesson is that if push comes to shove and you're really under threat, we can mobilize enormous amounts of money and enormous efforts. So I think the whole discussion in the Western world about, well, we can't afford this or uh, you know, too much debt and all that has changed radically because we see that if we really need to, we can mobilize a lot. And then also that mobilization leads to recovery and recovery at, at quite a high rate. But your question in essence is, are we going to do this in a just way? And that, I think, is going to be the core of the problem for a generation at least. Why? Because I don't think the climate crisis is going to be a politically divisive issue anymore. I think, uh, you know, from left to right, conservatives, progressives, everyone understands that this is a crisis that is a existential challenge to humanity. So that's not what's going to distinguish us. The question is... How do you respond to it in a way that leaves no one behind? I think that will be the decisive political issue dividing left and right in the next generation. And I hope the left understands this because as a Labour politician, what I worry about most is this attempt to oppose climate to Labour in saying you cannot be forward-looking on climate because that will cost too much uh, on the social side. It's the other way around. If you're not forward-looking enough on climate, the ones who will pay the highest price are the ones who cannot move, who cannot move physically or cannot move from, to another job or, or to another country. Rich people will always be able to find some safe place high up in the mountains in Switzerland or I don't know where. Ordinary people can't. They can't afford to do that. So acting on the climate crisis is not something you do for the do-gooders, you know, the Tesla-driving tofu eaters. You do it for ordinary people, for working-class people. Those are the people I have in mind, and my kids and my grandson, when I, when I try and develop these policies. Uh, and it, as long as the left understands that, we'll be all right. If the left is seduced into an opposition between labor rights on the one hand and climate policy on the other, we will play into the hands of those who don't want to change, who have vested interest to protect, or who have an ideological reason to just deny the climate crisis. And we have to be extremely careful that doesn't happen to us. So the UK, Europe, China, they're all having gas crises right now that's already shown to have negative consequences for the less fortunate. What lessons can governments and politicians take from what's happening now and channel it into how to protect the less fortunate demographics when it comes to the changes that will need to be made for climate change? Well, the, the irony of the matter is that had we had a European Green Deal five years earlier, we would not be in this crisis because our dependency on fossil fuels would be less today than it is now. So, in other words, speeding up the transition to renewables is one of the fundamental answers to this crisis. Why? Renewables are consistently cheap, are getting cheaper almost by the day. If you organize it well, they're accessible to everyone. Many people can be masters of their own energy resourcing uh, if you do it well. Also, regions in the world become less dependent on other regions in the world, so it cannot be manipulated politically as it was in the past. So there's all sorts of reasons not to slow down our transition 
but to speed it up. Now, some are trying to blame the transition for the high energy prices, which is nonsense. Don't take my word for it. Uh, the International Energy Agency, which is not usually seen as a left-leaning organisation, has been very clear on that as well. So what we need to do is to speed up the transition, but that will not bring any relief on the short term. What we'll also need to do is to make sure you soften the blow of peaks in the energy pricing in the meantime, because this is now a peak. I can't pretend it's going to be the last one. There might be others. And then you have to use the instruments you have as governments to make sure people don't fall into energy poverty so that you compensate those who are most vulnerable. Now, how can you do that? All energy is taxed and taxed quite heavily. So you can look at taxation and see how that effect of, of taxation is. The pricing of energy is so political that you can use political instruments to influence the pricing of energy. But you have to do it in a way that does not weaken the investment into renewables. And, that, and that's sort of the nuance you need to look for. But I, I gave a concrete example last week. We have an emissions trading system where the price of a tonne of CO2 in the industry went from approximately 30 euros to approximately 60 euros in about a year's time. That price difference leads to almost 11 billion euros of extra income for our member states out of the ETS. It's up to them what, what they do with that money. They could use that money also to compensate the citizens for, for higher energy prices. What I would not be in favour of is to sort of take us out of energy markets. Because if you put a price on carbon, the markets can work in your favor. Because industry understands that. They know what the incentive is. They know how, how they can avoid being taxed or being responsible to pay for their emissions by lowering their emissions. And it's actually working. And the revenues from, those, uh, from this emissions trading system can be put to good use for citizens and for the transition. You briefly mentioned um, the markets. I wanted to ask about this question of who's going to pay for action on climate change mm -hmm. and how governments and the EU can get the private sector to contribute financially in a way that will actually move the needle. If you look at it in a longer, in a longer period of time, the transition is going to happen and everybody's aware of that and everybody's preparing for that. The money will be there and everybody knows that it will be. The problem we have is that the money has to be available in a very, very short period of time uh, because we cannot afford to take 20 years for this transition. If you want to reduce, for instance, in Europe, our emissions with at least 55% in what is essentially eight years' time, you need to increase, for instance, the uh, percentage of renewable energy in your energy mix to 40%. That's huge investments. And Much of that will be private, but the private investment will only come if we as governments offer the right incentives, but also the right regulatory framework so that we become predictable and dependable. How will the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism work in practice? Do we need an individual taxes on countries or some sort of global system? Well, it's working already, even when it's not in place yet, because What is the reason for carbon border adjustment mechanism? The reason is, is the following. If you introduce a price on carbon in your economy, this has a price effect for your industry. If they see that price effect not happening elsewhere, the incentive to move their production to that other place is, is huge for cost reasons. Now, if that happens, 
everyone loses because Europe would lose industry and the climate would not win anything because emissions would stay at the same level. So we have to make sure that when we put a price on carbon on our industry, they don't feel the incentive to leave. And to do that, we have to make sure that you control that at the border. So what we've done is identified a number of areas where this might be a problem. And then for two years, we'll just study what happens if in those areas, vis-a-vis certain third countries, we would need to introduce a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So that's, that's cement, that's fertilizer, that's aluminium, that's steel, and that's electricity. And in these areas, we will see what happens and then just do the accounting and then see what you would impose on those who do not move towards uh, decarbonizing their economy and who want to bring products on the European market. So you would look at the product and see what the price differential is as a result of a different carbon footprint and then compensate for that. But first of all, we wanted to be in conformity with uh, World Trade Organization rules. Secondly, we don't want to rush into this. We want to just study what the effects would be. So we'll take a trial period where we, we do the, the calculations, but we don't impose the, uh, the levies. And then we'll see what happens in those different sectors. But the interesting thing is that because all countries that are introducing policies to decarbonize their economy will be faced with this challenge because they will all be faced with the risk of their industry leaving to another place. They might not all come up with the same solution, but they will have to find a solution. And if they find a solution we can coordinate with them, then between that country, whether it's the US or, or, or another country, and us, there will never be a need for a carbon border adjustment mechanism because we're moving in the same direction. So the risk of carbon leakage would not be there. Quickly, I wanted to ask how much focus should be placed on issues such as reducing methane emissions. Is that a story that has gotten lost in the talk of coal? We've just taken an initiative, the United States and the European Union, a methane initiative, which is is really taking off. We had a conference, uh, John Kerry and I, uh, yesterday, uh, where we invited quite a number of countries. And we now have an increasing number of, of countries signing up for this. Why is that so interesting. Methane is, is, is a very, very dangerous gas to have in your atmosphere. It's also a gas that disappears relatively quickly. So if you could have measures to avoid it getting into the atmosphere in the first place, you make a huge contribution in reducing greenhouse gas emissions in an area that also could lead to profitable economic uh, developments, uh, such as agriculture, but also in other areas. And it's relatively easy to do, you know. What what you need to do is seal off mines that are still open, seal off oil wells, gas wells, where still methane is coming out. You need to look at animal fodder and change that. There's a lot of things we can do there. And then finally, I wanted to ask about biodiversity. So does the European Commission plan to bring biodiversity and the climate agendas closer together? Yes, indeed. The thing is, I worry most about the fact that the sense of urgency with the threat of ecocide is not at the same level as the sense of urgency we have with the climate crisis. So we need to understand that the threatening ecocide is at least as threatening to our survival as humanity as is the the climate crisis. And they are interlinked. And I hope that the uh, COP15 that's happening in Kunming and that's now happening in, in two goes also early next year will help us set aside large parts of our natural environment so that it can recover. 30% of protected areas at sea and on land 
is something we're looking for as European Union, especially marine environment. If you leave it alone for a couple of years, it recovers so, so quickly. And the biggest carbon sinks we have on Earth are our oceans. So we really need to make sure we protect our oceans and improve the quality of our oceans. But more than anything else, we need to mobilize our public in the understanding that the threatening ecocide is at least as threatening to our survival as the climate crisis. Franz Timmermans, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, well, for more of Megan on Timmermans, you can read the written version of this interview, which is online at newstatesman.com. And we will put a link to that piece in the notes for this episode. But Megan, I also wanted to ask you, you know, as now having spoken to him and having done that interview, and, and as you're sort of looking at where these various countries are in the run up to COP, what will you be keeping an eye out for in the next week or so? I mean, I think anyone who's covering COP and looking at what's going to happen in the next week is looking at the same things. What commitments China is going to make? What commitments Russia is going to make? Where is Australia going to fit in in all of this? Where is the US going to come in in all of this? I mean, there are a lot of unanswered questions that we probably won't find out the final details of which until the very end of the two weeks that COP runs. And we talked about the just transition, how important it is for globalized nations to step up that $100 billion that they are going to commit, which they were supposed to commit by 2020. But will they actually meet that target for this year and every year thereafter? They're so close. So it'll just be really interesting to see if they can actually go through with this commitment that they've made to non-industrialized nations. Yeah, I mean, not to be American-centric on this podcast yet again, but it's it's looking increasingly likely that the United States will show up 
essentially empty handed having not passed the reconciliation bill that has the bulk of the action that was going to be taken to combat the climate crisis, or alternatively, that they will pass it, but that it will be so watered down and with so much stripped out that the really meaningful action will not have been taken anyway. My gut feeling, unfortunately, is that this has now gone on long enough and the senator, specifically Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, has dug in his heels enough on protecting coal in his state that I would be I would be truly shocked if come October 31st in Glasgow, you know, that the U.S. rolls up having actually accomplished what they said they were going to accomplish ahead of this conference, unfortunately. And I think actually we're in for a lot of disappointments. Even the UK, super ambitious, has rolled out its plan. And the first thing you're hearing is just criticisms that it's not ambitious enough. Or as Timmerman says in the interview, you know, it's great to have ambitious plans, but you actually need a detailed roadmap to back it up and actually achieve that plan. So I think I think it's going to be really interesting and possibly very disappointing what we'll see in the next couple of weeks. Well, before we go off into the sunset, it's not the sunset, it's early in the day here in Washington. Um, but before we go, we have one more announcement. Beginning next week, the New Statesman World Review is going twice weekly. We will have a new Thursday episode in which the New Statesman International team will talk over the top topics, say that 10 times fast, from the week's global news and make sense of it. Um, so that team is a mix of me, Megan, Jeremy, Ito, and our new colleague, Alex. Then we will also have a new Monday episode, which will be an in-depth interview with a guest. And that, that could be a New Statesman contributor. It could be an expert in, in their field. And that person will have some important original contribution on global affairs. We think this will allow you, our listeners, to hear more from the international team as it grapples with these events and issues, while also keeping the interviews that we know so many of you enjoy. Both episodes will still have the You Ask Us segment, so please keep those questions coming at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. As always, we got to remind you, one, to sign up to our newsletter. You can do that at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, what do you do? You tell your friends, aunts, uncles, cousins, haters, like, subscribe, leave a review. And be sure to listen next week. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening. Until next week with two episodes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.